Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Wilton Barnhart. His previous novels are Look Away, Look Away, Gospel, Showworld, and Emma, Who Saved My Life. His new novel is Western Alliances, which is published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. Wilton, welcome to the program. Thank you. It is an honor to have you here, Wilton. So first, uh, you and I first crossed paths at North Carolina State University, both when I was a graduate student there and then later when I ran the North Carolina Literary Festival with my colleague, Marion Fregola, uh, which I then bought and changed the name of to the NC Book Festival as there were problems with the web address for NC Lit Fest. Um, how have things been in North Carolina over the past year? Well, um, I think you know we uh, are a purple kind of state and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we take one step back uh, and maybe two steps forward on occasion. Uh, we've had some... Uh, some rough goings with our our legislature, but I still think fundamentally, maybe I'm naive, uh, that among the Southern states, North Carolina is a little more committed to education. And I believe the the triangle uh, remains a cultural hub. Of course, you get outside the triangle and I wouldn't wouldn't take my chances, but uh, Mm -hmm. definitely the Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh, I guess we should, you know, throw in Hillsborough and some other uh, of the little towns too. Mm-hmm. Uh, still remains strong and remains a bastion of uh, what, whatever it is that is North Carolina culture. Absolutely, thank you for that update. Um, and before we move on, uh, speaking of the North Carolina Book Festival, you once wrote and read an extraordinary introduction uh, for my friend Bill Volman. What is it, Wilton, about Bill's work that interests you? Well, he just has the courage of uh, his convictions, and I, I, I brush against that courage from time to time. I've got this eight hundred page book gospel, which mm. has everything in the kitchen sink concerning first uh, century, second century uh, Christian patristics and theology, and uh, the characters are running around the world trying to get their hands on a black market scroll that may be a fake and it may be an actual gospel. Well, Volman. To my mind, like uh, I'm trying to think if there's anyone who's as good as he is, uh, he'll just take a topic and if it takes uh, 2,500 pages to wrestle it to the ground, well, that's what he does. And mm-hmm. you would think that these would be unreadable books, but they are absolute page turners. I just stand in awe of Volman. And I think there are other, you know, big idea writers like Thomas Pinchon or and I, I love A.S. Byatt. I mean, others do it, but I don't think anyone does it like Volman. Yeah, I agree. And one more aside before we jump into your novel um, related to you and a question our friend Bill would appreciate. Will, and what's your favorite bourbon? My favorite what? Your favorite bourbon. Uh, favorite, oh, man, that changes. At the moment, I'm uh, there's these uh, crazy guys in Chattanooga that are making something called Chattanooga, Tennessee whiskey. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get a hold of. And I mean, I'm in a state next door to Tennessee. I can't get it. I have to occasionally dip into Tennessee to pick it up, but I think it's first rate. Nice. nice. That's my, that's my bourbon of the moment. 
I'm going to have to check that one out. Thank you so much, Wilton. Um, now let's move on to your excellent new novel, Western Alliances. Wilton, can you please take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners? Well, uh, yeah, sure. It's uh, It follows the uh, travails of Roberto and Rachel Costa. They are from Providence, Rhode Island. They, uh, Their parents were working class uh, as could be. They sort of got the advantage of a middle class upbringing. And then the father made an absolute fortune. He was a sort of strip mall bond seller who got lifted up to the big leagues and uh, got to New York. And he ended up on a CNBC uh, show before Jim Cramer's Mad Money and became a uh, celebrity uh, preaching the gospel of bonds. And uh, uh, he ended up on the board of Hightower Wiggins, which is my made up uh uh, investment banking firm. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the kids find themselves trust fund kids mm -hmm. and they can live in Europe and put their feet up and, and spend all their time racing around to palaces and castles. They haven't checked off their list. Uh, uh, Roberto would like to see every Romanesque uh, facade of a church from the 1100s, 1200s in, in Europe. Uh, Rachel is trying to catalog all the paleo-Christian mosaics uh, in Rome and Ravenna and everywhere else. And uh, they despise each other, of course, and they uh, have a terrible rivalry. And uh, uh, Roberto has a series of health problems that make him a very undependable Lothario, but that does not stop a parade of seductions uh, all over Europe. So they're having a great time, but perhaps I failed to mention the year is 2008 and the bottom's about to fall out of every investment investment banking firm that um, got heavily invested in real estates and uh, real estate and CDOs and all that nonsense. And uh, so suddenly they're having to face the fact that the money's running out and even a worse looming fear they may have to go home and get a job mm -hmm. back in the united states of america so there's a it's it's comic but in some ways it's not that comic particularly at the end when they're getting all of them are getting a little greedy for the money thank you will and I'm, i've got several follow-up questions there but i do want to interject and say that the uh, cnbc television show Costa doing business gave me a nice uh, laugh out loud moment that I very much appreciated. Um, Wilton, you travel a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean more than most people who believe they travel a lot. Uh, this is a chicken and egg question kind of, but was this book informed by your travels or were your travels led by the writing of this book? I, that's an easy one. I, I traveled first. The desire to travel was a family uh, obsession. My mm -hmm. father had it and my mother had it twice as bad as my father. Uh, and we went everywhere in North America. And then somewhere around 1972, uh, we all took a family trip to Europe. Now, this was when you could still get from, this is before your time, Jason. There's a, a series of books by Arthur Fromer called Europe on $5 a day. I want you to think mm -hmm. about Five dollars a day. You couldn't really? do anything for five dollars a day now. It eventually raised to ten dollars a day. But there was a time when the dollar was so strong and uh, people were welcoming and the American tourists had not overrun everything. There were a lot of, you know, uh, packaged bus tours. But the idea of a family setting out on their own, renting a car and driving all over Europe uh, was still fairly 
new at that time. And we found ourselves behind the Iron Curtain. And um, occasionally, uh, my father once got arrested in Yugoslavia. This is still under Tito because he took a picture of a mountain that had a base. He had no idea what anyone was saying when we all went to the, uh, I guess, the equivalent of the sheriffs. Uh, mm -hmm. We went to Ceausescu's Bucharest, and it was absolutely joyless, charmless, mm -hmm. soldiers everywhere. And my mother said, why? Why are we even here? My father said, because it's the capital of Romania. Yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a kind of naivete in our travels. We, mm -hmm. we just wanted to see everything uh, on the map. And I remember my father having a massive Europe map, probably the one you get from AAA, which has barely any roads or detail on it, and just drawing a line, connecting all the important places that we needed to see. So that, uh, I mean, I was hooked. And then I have out-traveled everybody in my family. Possibly my late mother got to more countries than me, but I'm I'm catching up fast. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm happier traveling many times than when I'm sitting at home. I come back from six months trips, eight month trips, mm. exhausted. And I think that's it. I'm not going anywhere ever again. I, that was more expensive. That was, uh, you know, no one can air condition. I'm a molten mess. I feel I've caught all kinds of strange foreign ailments. My digestion will never be the same. I flop onto the sofa and in about three weeks, I'm ready to go again. I think, God, get me out of this place. I got to get moving again. Right. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, and that reminds me of uh, when I was growing up, my grandparents used to take me on these majestic RV trips every summer. And then eventually we made our way overseas to Europe and China, etc. Um, what a fantastic way to grow up. Uh, a loosely related question, Wilton, can you next talk about the formatting of this novel, the photographs mostly? What was the impetus behind the inclusion of the photographs in this book? And is this new for you, this type of formatting? Yes, I. this was new. And I mean, I've watched others just do fabulous things with photos in their book. I think about the Stone Diaries by Carol Shields, where she raided a, a junk shop and found all these wonderful portraits of grandma and grandpa, and then proceeded to write a story to match the photos she found. And I'm a big fan of W.G. Sebald, who uh, walked all over East Anglia and England and, and put his amateur photos in there and blended what was real and what was not real. Uh, I don't know if you saw Neil Stevenson's mm -hmm. book. I mean, just gorgeous. I mean, mind you, they St. Mm -hmm. Martin's did not spend one zillion dollars to <laughs> reproduce my photos like that, but they're still quite good. Um, so I also wondered, uh, I'd like to write for a general audience. I think anyone, any bright high school kid on up ought to be able to read anything I write, even though this is filled with cultural stuff and historical stuff. And I worried as they're, the brother and sister are arguing about who has seen what Romanesque tympana first, mm -hmm. that there'll be people out there going, what the hell are they talking about here? I mean, what 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 is a tympanum? What is a what sculptures are they referring to? So I thought, well, why not illustrate it? God knows I've got 100,000 million pictures and boxes from the photo negative era upstairs in my attic. I think anyone my age probably does. But I thought, well, let's let's scan some of these and use them. And uh, St. Martin's was thumbs up on that. And uh, I wish I could have put some more in there, but they said, you know, however many I got, 70, 80, or that was enough. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Wilton. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Wilton Barnhart. 
Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Wilton Barnhart, author of Western Alliances, which is published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. Wilton, I'm always curious, um, our sponsor, as we just heard from Libro FM Audiobooks, I'm curious how a book with photographs and such translates to audiobook. Can you tell us about the production of the audiobook of Western Alliances? Well, uh, we had to, uh, this was Macmillan Audiobooks, and we had to have quite an audition. This book is set in at least 16 countries, mm-hmm. and there are people from countries not where the setting is that that come in and pass through the book. You had to have someone who could read it that could manage Dutch accent, Russian accent, Italian accent, French accent, Spanish, German, British, not to mention the Rhode Island accent mm-hmm. of our of our main character. So there was quite an audition and I was blown away by the talent, by the the, uh, the subtlety and the amazing uh, accent work of many of the actors. But we landed on, I think, the champion, Carolyn Hewitt, who's a veteran reader of these kind of books. And uh, uh, I haven't heard it yet. I can hardly wait. But we we did go over the passages where you really had to have the picture for the text to make sense. And I just rewrote those passages, mm. um, you know, no, no great loss of uh, understanding, I think. But yeah, we had to, we had to fudge a few sections and it was great fun working with them. I can hardly wait to hear the finished product. And I'm someone who really doesn't like to hear their own book read back to them. It makes me totally anxious and nervous. And I sit there and go, oh, I could have put that better. What was I thinking of that adjective? <laughs> uh, but no, I really look forward to hearing, hearing her work on this. Yeah. I don't know what the... Oscars of audiobooks are, but if she's not nominated for this uh, tour de force, I, there's no justice. <laughs> nice. You're making me uh, want to listen to it as well, Will, and I'm going to check that one out. Well, um, you mentioned earlier the financial collapse, and this book begins around the 2008 financial collapse. I'm realizing as we are sitting here in 2023 that a percentage of our listeners may not know what the hell we're talking about. Um, can you provide our listeners with some context here of what was going on around 2008? There's some wonderful books. I read most of them and uh, the occasional good movie like The Big Short that do it a lot better than I could. But uh, everybody uh, in in New York decided uh, that uh, the boom in the real estate, uh, that mortgages uh, could be bundled and the high risk mortgages could be mixed with the low risk mortgages. The people who were never going to miss a payment could be mixed with the people who might occasionally miss a payment. And then that could be sold. Uh, in the meantime, they were doing all kinds of tricks with uh, uh, collateralized debt. And I mean, it, it, your re- listeners' eyes will glaze over if I go on about it. I I have Sal, the father, who is at uh, the investment banking firm, explain a lot of it to Roberto, whose eyes also glaze over. I mean, it's a 
that, but the bottom line was people got greedy and people uh, invested tremendous amounts of money on credit, borrowed money usually uh, in things that weren't a good investment. And it's just this, this how financial crashes and panics have always happened to people over speculating on on stuff that's not any good. And so uh, Bear Stearns, which has been around forever, Lehman Brothers goes back to cotton trading in, mm. in the uh, you know 19th century. All of these firms, these storied firms going bust uh, out uh, $45, $50 billion more than they had collateral. And Hightower Wiggins, I, I named that investment banking firm after two crooks early in the century. Any Anyone who knows their financial history will smile uh, at that. Um, but anyway, they're, they're in as bad a trouble as anyone, but uh, they they turn to Sal Costa on his uh, because he has a, a charming, funny shtick on his TV show, mm. and they let him be the CEO. So they figure he can tread water and talk circles around people and maybe get them to the point that the government will buy their bad paper, uh, which is what happened to other uh, firms uh, after a few. Uh, firms like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers went bust. They, uh, as an example, you know, for future in, uh, investment banking firms, they started bailing out the others and buying off their toxic uh, debt. But um, Tower Wiggins is not going to suffer quite uh, that that good a fate, and it leaves the uh, the kids contemplating that their trust funds, which are tied to the profits of Hightower Wiggins, they're watching it go down, 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 and soon there's not much money. And then they are, are the, the family, the, the mother, I should mention, is a scam artist from way back. She's always trying to get her hands in everybody else's pockets. And that's part of the amusement of the book, because she's really successful on her scams. But anyway, I don't want to give anything away. But uh I doubt there's a family quite like this uh, in 2008, but out there somewhere were probably some trust fund kids in Europe that uh, had a rude awakening that, you know, I think Bear Stearns stock went to $2 a share when Goldman uh, Sachs offered to buy them out. I mean, this was, these were things that were thousands a share. You know, you could imagine the loss of fortune. And often uh, these firms paid their employees in stock. And that's what you would rather have the stock than money, because what could ever go wrong with a fabulous ancient firm like Lehman Brothers? So anyway, I've, I've captured some of that chaos of that era, I think. Absolutely. And I'm curious, Wilton, what led you to want to write about finance in the first place? You know, the finance is really just a backdrop. I think Europe and Having, you know, your youth and your fun in Europe and seeing how long you could stay away from America, because I was sort of in that category. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the original, you know, backpacker and the, you know, five dollar hostel and uh, uh, sleeping on trains. I mean, I did all of that stuff. And uh, and then when I uh, got my job at North Carolina State University in their Master of Fine Arts program for creative writing, uh, I spent summers taking the kids, to, uh, not the MFA kids, but a general student group on a study abroad trip uh, to Prague, to London, to Edinburgh, and all over. Um, and so I got you know, to go to Europe for another 10 summers in a row. And then I went to graduate school in Europe and that meant another four or five years in Europe. So I was really pretty saturated with Europe. And uh, I just, uh, I thought, what would it be like if suddenly someone said, no, you can't do it? Well, 
I sort of learned a little of that with COVID. Uh, uh, all travel was shut down and you didn't want to go to places that might give you COVID. You didn't want to bring COVID uh, to those places. And how are you going to travel there where you're not in a small little airplane or on a cruise ship where COVID was breaking out and taking down lots of people. So in a way, I did learn what it was like to be deprived or forbidden to go to Europe. But I, I did, that maybe helped uh, write, for me to write about Roberto and Rachel's panic that suddenly this uh, playground was going to be taken away from them. But uh, no, I, uh, I, I am not this is not autobiographical in that Roberto and his trust fund was me. I would, I would love to have had a trust fund, but um, my dad was a, a chemist in a lab at Reynolds tobacco company. And my mom was a school teacher. We, we were very self-educated, wonderful uh, worldly people, but we didn't have a lot of money and no one was about to uh, allow me to just dance around Europe for, uh, for summer after summer. Uh, this was all on my own dime. So uh, so, so I don't have his exact perspective, but I did run into people who, who got to live that life and maybe my taking it all away from them or bankrupting those trust fund kids is a kind of revenge, uh, for all my nights in the, in the loud, noisy hostel. Absolutely. Thank you, Wilton. Um, one more, uh, question about finance before we move on specifically as it relates to, to Sal Costa. Um, I used to work in finance when I, I used to manage a big borders store in, uh, San Francisco. And when that store went bankrupt, uh, the first job that offered me a salary greater than what I was getting paid from California unemployment was Vanguard, the mutual company. And they hired me to be a stockbroker. Um, I left Vanguard when Facebook went public, uh, to work at North Carolina State University because I felt I was working in a casino at that moment of time and I didn't want to work in a casino. Um, but wow. amongst all of the mutual funds, uh, EFTs, et cetera, the most boring ones were the ones built around bonds. Um, what does it say about uh, your character, Wilton, that he is an expert on bonds? What can we derive from that as readers? Well, he he has a press conference when he takes over as CEO and Lehman Brothers has gone bust the week before and they expect him to announce the bankruptcy of his firm. And instead, it's a massive I told you so mm -hmm. uh, where he excoriates everyone and, and says, hey, about uh, my 2% in bond in the bond division looks pretty good about now, doesn't it, folks? You know, mm -hmm. uh, no bonds are the if you had some if you had bonds, you might have crawled through. Uh, uh, but that's um, bonds are not sexy. And that's one of the running jokes of Sal Costa's television show that it's a, of course, you're not making 4%, 7%. Of course not. This is, you know, it's a good, steady, dependable investment, boring like your old friend Sal Costa. I mean, you can just sort of see his shtick. He uh, dresses like uh, he has, you know, loud ties and check plaid uh, sports coats, and he makes fun of the caste system of Wall Street, the people who are the hedge fund managers, the swells in the boardrooms of Wall Street. They they issue the bond guys, the commodity guys, the guys that are yelling on the trading floor. That's all working class. That's all Jersey. That's all Queens, right? And so he plays to that on his show. So he's always, he's got that Rhode Island accent and, and he tells it like it is. And he has a, a little feature called Sal's Two Cents at the end where he holds forth again, preaching the gospel of dependable bonds over the high-flying impossible returns of some of the financial 
plans that are out there. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I, I guess I probably should be invested more in bonds myself, having having had that central revelation. But I think all my mutual funds are out there at at the highest possible risk. Yep, yep, yep. I can sympathize with that. Well, um, I'm going to take a left turn here, Wilton, and ask, uh, is this the sexiest novel you have ever written? I ask because around page 100, give or take a few pages, I felt like this novel switched from a novel of finance and family, uh, maybe a succession-esque novel, to a descendant uh, possibly of uh, the works of the Marquis de Sade. I don't know about Sade, but I, <laughs> perhaps Henry Miller. Maybe. maybe, maybe That's yeah. better. Uh, Roberto... <laughs> is uh, a really good looking guy and it eventually comes out that it's that he's he's like six five mm-hmm. and it comes out that he's rich um he's worldly he speaks a bunch of languages he was a foreign language major uh, he was told by his father he could do something without any commercial uh you know worth down the road in some ways and that's what he's done and so you think this is the perfect you know man this is this this guy you know, has it all, except he also has a very bad health problem. He has Marfan syndrome. And I won't mm. I go into it in the book, uh, but it's when you grow too quickly in adolescence, um, it, it's generally genetic. Uh, and it's not a death sentence, but you, you, you we remember uh, some fairly famous uh, and tragic incidents where basketball players in college might collapse on the court Mm -hmm. and their hearts gave out. And if you don't see it coming, if you're not aware that you have it, if you, uh, one of those 14 year olds that grows to six, five, you know, when they're 12 or 13, that's a sign that you might have this particular condition. So he is on a bunch of uh, nitroglycerin to get through the day. And that forbids him uh, from ever, you know, taking a Viagra or a Cialis or something, and uh, which he needs because his circulation is a disaster. His blood pressure is a disaster. So here is the man that on paper has everything, perhaps uh, at least a summer fling would want, mm-hmm. um, but he can't follow through on a lot of it. But he gets inventive and finds other ways to make his lovers, men and women, uh, happy. So he's having, yeah, that's right. He has quite a, uh, sexual field day in Europe, but that's often what uh, Americans have used uh, Europe for as the wild affairs and the, and the romance. And of course, when you get back from it, when you get older, you realize that uh, they were looking for the same thing perhaps with the, uh, with the American and that everybody's actually a lot duller than you think they are in Europe. They're mm-hmm. not all uh, charismatic, foreign language speaking, dashing stereotypes. They're actually, uh, you know, future accountants and grocery store clerks. But uh, you don't know that when you're young. That's what Europe and travel generally is for, I think, is to have those adventures. Absolutely. Thank you, Wilton. Um, there is one scene in your novel where an elevator is being taken and the elevator is in a state of disrepair. Uh, the writer has to kind of, or the writer has to grab a ledge through the elevator door and do a bit of a chin up. Uh, to bring the elevator to the correct alignment so the door will open. This seems like the sort of detail that is based on personal experience. Um, So this question is twofold. One, is it? And two, uh, do you oftentimes find you base your work on personal experience or are you mostly writing outside of yourself? I think anyone that's gone to France and maybe Switzerland, Italy, a few of these countries uh, have 
dealt with the lift, the lift that is big enough just for one human being. Mm -hmm. It's on some horrible little rusted track that goes up the shaft of a of an old building imposed into a stairwell that it maybe never should have been. And that if uh, you're too tall, you're too heavy, you're too big, your suitcase is too heavy, uh, it won't quite pull up to the level of the floor. And therefore the door won't open. The electronic uh, eye or whatever, the thing that probably was installed after World War II won't, won't open. And uh, I have throughout the book, I have crazy elevators, crazy toilets. I mean, that's Europe. It has flourishes in, in its uh, bizarre toilet configurations and uh, showers. Uh, it seems to me the idea of turning on, you know, a shower and air conditions, another thing, uh, which the Europeans are learning they're going to need now, mm -hmm. uh, particularly this summer. But I was over there in 2003 and it was over 100 degrees in places and they didn't have air conditioning in the hotels. And uh, I... Uh, allow me uh, an American's sort of looking down his nose at some of the European devices and contraptions. I'm sure they look down their nose at all of our stuff too. But uh, so every time there was uh, there was a chance for a piece of uh, inferior technology, I usually mentioned it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Wilton. Um, there is an allusion in your novel to a book written about the Fitzgeralds, but mostly about Zelda. Uh, is this a real book or, or are you um, kind of alluding to another book? Uh, yeah, Roberto is always reading some European title and uh, uh, Gilles Leroy, and I might be saying his name wrong, had a book called Alabama Song. Uh, sort of following uh, the Fitzgerald's stumble, uh, stumbling, drunken progress through Europe, sort of through Zelda Fitzgerald's eyes. And, um, of course, I uh, live down the street from Therese Fowler, whose wonderful novel, Z, uh, was about Zelda Fitzgerald. So I had Zelda and the Fitzgeralds generally on the brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Tender is the Night in some ways more than I remember well, except for Gatsby, anything else that he ever wrote. And it seemed to me just such a sad story of uh, a very bad drunk uh, misbehaving in various European watering holes. And mm. I think the Europeans have a fascination too with uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and that crowd. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess they were on the brain and I, I have a few allusions to other, uh, you know, expatriates here and there, but uh, that's uh I don't, I don't think we ever quite lose our interest in F. Scott and Zelda. No, absolutely not. Well, thank you. Um, finally, Wilton, our time is running short here, but I do want to ask, uh, as this is a popular thing to do lately, and this may have been a throwaway line in your novel, but can you compare popular perceptions of Norway with popular perceptions of America, as your narrator might do? Well, one of the things, Roberto, I'm sure – to not be permitted to go to Norway ever again after this, or actually Switzerland is the country I really savaged. Mm -hmm. But um, but I think Norway uh, is a lot has a lot more grit and urban problems. Uh, they cover it better. They have a better social state for things. But oh my God, the drinking and the and I thought the drug use just among my little crowd. Um, I think that we tend to look at them as wow, they've got it all set up. It's perfect. And uh, actually the city, the state that's got it all set up is Denmark. Denmark's perfect. Uh, but Norway is not as perfect, nor Sweden. Uh, Finland's not bad. 
what Scandinavia has always held up to us as look, look at how they do everything very well. Well, they certainly manage their social state very well and the roads and the schools and the free education and the health care. All of that is all of that is absolutely true. But Norway's got a, a ornery streak, which I like about them. Of course, they're not really part of they're associated with uh, the Eurozone, but they're not on the euro and they're not really going to give up their kronar. And uh, of course, they were, uh, along with England, uh, a uh, one of the countries in World War II that did not surrender. You know, I always liked that about them. And uh, of course, they live in the most beautiful country probably in Europe. I mean, I, I love what you can see in uh, the coasts of France and the mountains of Italy. But man, just the sheer, uh, you know, square mile after square mile of the most spectacular Nordic scenery uh, in Norway. Nothing is like that. And I, I recommend anyone to get on a cruise ship and from Bergen or uh, and then take your progress up to the top of the world. It's absolutely amazing. So, no, I'm a big Norway fan. I hope they won't be too offended by what yeah. I wrote about them. Yeah, I haven't been to Norway, but I did once play drums for a band in some mountaintop town in Switzerland with a, a polka band opening up and it was uh, anarchy. Yeah. Just, you know, so, so much drinking everywhere. Um, good times though. Well, thank you, Wilton. And uh, thank you for writing this wonderful novel that I cannot wait to get into our listeners hands. Listeners. I've been speaking with yeah. Wilton Barnhart, author of Western alliances, which is published by our friends at St. Martin's press. Wilton, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I but I got to wrench in one more comment, which is yeah. uh, North Carolina misses you, Jason. The NC Literary Festival has never been the same, and it was never as good as when you ran it. So you guys in Aspen, you've got a real treasure out there. I just want everyone to know. Thank you, Wilton. Once again, I would like to thank Wilton Barnhart for joining me. Copies of Western Alliances can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.